You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Thomas Crowther, ecologist, co-chair of the board for the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration, and founder of Restore. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. We showed a few years ago that the Earth has three trillion trees on it. What a, a fantastic insight about the state of the planet. But what's more useful is that we were also able to use those models to show that there is room for one trillion additional trees. So historically, there would have been about six trillion trees. We've halved that number. And there's the potential, if we protect nature, to recover a trillion new trees. Now, one sort of misunderstanding or oversimplification that sometimes happens is that people do think that means buy up land and plant trees. And that is absolutely not the case. What we need to do to achieve that is to, to find the thousands or millions of indigenous populations and farmers and local communities who are protecting biodiversity. And we need to fund those people and buy their products and distribute the flow of wealth on our planet to empower those people. And that's how we build a really sustainable movement. So as I say, global restoration really means finding and empowering the millions of local communities and indigenous populations and farmers who are promoting biodiversity. Restore is a digital platform, sort of like Google Maps, but for restoration. So rather than seeing coffee shops and supermarkets, you will see conservation projects and indigenous-led restoration initiatives. Currently on Restore, I think we have around 140,000. So you can go on there for free right now and find thousands and thousands of these amazing heroes of nature. And you can zoom in and you can see every single tree on the ground. You can see every single bush and you can fund them or you can buy their coffee or you can go visit their projects and do ecotourism. There's a myriad of ways that we can all support their efforts by also improving our own lives. Regenerative agriculture would have a huge contribution. We're talking 30 to 50% of our carbon emissions would be sequestered in rejuvenating ecosystems if we could transform the very negative ways that we impact nature, if we can transform them into positive ones with regenerative agriculture that promotes biodiversity in our agricultural systems. And by conserving the forest that's still there, we could really have this huge impact. Now, it is worth stressing, we need that alongside cuts to emissions. Every step we can possibly take to limit emissions will only help nature and it will increase the power of nature to achieve those goals. So we really can't be talking about this in terms of nature or cutting emissions because we definitely need both. There's a wealth of knowledge held by these local communities and farmers around the world. And what we need to do is find them, empower them and build the learning process so that they can share knowledge between one another. They can also gain access to any scientific advances that might hopefully help. But it really has to be the bottom-up movement. It's got to be led by the people living in those areas. And when they choose to promote biodiversity, that is when biodiversity really thrives. So there's a huge amount that we can all learn from one another if we can build that learning process together. If certain people have more access to the incredible insights that are coming than other people, you know, it's richer people tend to have better access to artificial intelligence and the products that are coming out of it. And so that's a real challenge we have to address. But... If AI can be increasingly available to everyone, it could be an unbelievable opportunity for equitable development on our planet because this is an unbelievably unique tool that allows us to learn collectively from everything that's been done in the past. The strength of all of our biodiversity predictions, the strength of our farming systems that will be improved and are being improved by the wealth of knowledge that have been experienced by millions of people over the last decades and everything on the internet now informs our, our collective decision making. So it can be an incredible opportunity for equality and the distribution of knowledge that could really be the foundation for such a movement like this.
every new development is met with necessary skepticism, but I tend to think that every new development and AI in particular can open up new opportunities and new jobs. But even if it's not new jobs, I think it might also open up an opportunity for us to rethink what life is about. So there's a number of different governments that have put in place policies like payment for ecosystem service policies. Uh, we're working with the government of Ethiopia right now, who are tens of thousands of farms that they have paid them to promote biodiversity on those systems. But at the same time, that's improved their yields of those farmers, which makes nature the economic choice. There's one beautiful example I know very well in Ethiopia called Coffee Farm. And if you look on Restore, you can zoom in on the farm, you'll see the traditional footprint of agriculture, where the forest has been removed to make coffee. But on Dester's farm, you can zoom in and it just looks like a perfect forest. And that's because that's exactly what it is. He's planting the native coffee plants underneath the canopy of a beautiful tropical forest. And because the forest traps water and nutrients, he doesn't need fertilizers or irrigation. So his coffee plants grow really, really well in their native conditions, and his business is booming because he's saving loads of money. And because the, the nature makes his business more profitable, that only incentivizes him to support nature more. And in fact, all the farmers in the nearby area are also incentivized to make nature recover on their farms. And that is when we start to see these feedback loops where nature makes people more money, which makes more nature. And that's when it thrives and sort of grows across landscapes. We depended on nature for every aspect of our survival. We need it for our clean food, water, medicines, timber, all the products that we've ever depended on in our existence have come from nature. And that also includes our spiritual and our psychological health as well. The being of people is fundamentally dependent on nature. There is no ancient tradition or culture that isn't somehow underpinned or linked to the, the, the value, the, the beauty of nature in those regions. And it really holistically influences every single aspect of our survival and our economy and our livelihoods. And so it's really important that we both protect the nature that we still have on this planet, but also build into our economic systems, like our agricultural systems, ways to allow biodiversity to recover and thrive in a way that improves all of our health and livelihoods. One of the most fundamental principles in ecology is actually that every single species on the planet depends on other species to survive. And that plays out perfectly in our agricultural systems or in our cropping systems, where if you were just to plant rows of one single species, there's a whole range of reasons why that doesn't work very well in the long term. First, each one of those individual plants will be competing for the same resources, the same nutrients, the same light in exactly the same way, which means they fight a lot with each other. Whereas if you have different plant species that take up different niches, one will take water from deeper soils and one will take it from shallower soils. That means collectively they make much more use of the resources that are available and they put on much more biomass and they store more carbon from the atmosphere and they make more products. But also they are more resilient so if, let's say, a beetle, a pest comes through the system, if they're all the same species, that pest will destroy the entire thing. Whereas if they're all mixtures of species, the pest might eat one or two of the plant species and they won't be able to eat the others. And so this biological diversity is absolutely essential for the functionality of the system and the productivity of the yields, but also for the long-term sustainability of the system in itself. So what's really exciting is there's a growing body of evidence that shows that the, the depletion of our natural world actually stems from inequitable distribution of wealth. So the richer, the wealthiest part of our society gets, and the poorer the rural communities get, the more that they are forced to exploit the land in order to keep getting enough money to survive. When you're living day to day, you'll make decisions that go against your best interests in terms of 
having a sustainable agricultural system or having a sustainable ecosystem. And where we see examples of wealth being distributed more equitably in the other direction, when the flow of wealth can move towards those local farmers, even if it's not incentivized, even if you're not saying, here's some money, you must promote nature. If you just flow wealth in that direction, nature starts to recover. And it's, it's not always the case, but in many places around the world, distributing wealth in the right direction leads to these improvements in biodiversity. And one beautiful example we've got is in Costa Rica. So 30 years ago, the government abolished the army and they put all that money into education and the recovery of nature. And, and the, the way they achieved that recovery of nature is simply by distributing funds towards local landowners around the country. Now, we've been going around all those areas and, and listening to the sounds of nature it's called bioacoustics. And what we can see is that the soundscape of those ecosystems is getting closer to the natural state. But what's amazing is we can show that recovery of biodiversity makes those ecosystems sound statistically more similar to what humans prefer. And actually, we compared it statistically to the sounds of Bach and Beethoven and other classical music that humans have historically loved. And actually, the complex, beautiful mixtures of sounds of biodiversity are much closer to the sounds of music that we inherently enjoy. And it just shows how deeply rooted our connection to nature is. As biodiversity recovers, it becomes more enjoyable and immersive and more experiential for humans because we've evolved in those ecosystems where we depend on them to survive. I think our utilitarian approach to nature has really been the source of the, the problem. We've depended on nature for everything that allows us to survive. But what we tend to do as humans is extract the parts that give us a function. So we extract the parts that are for food and then we propagate them and we extract the parts for timber and we propagate them. And that leads to these monocultures that are not nature. They're extensive sort of reductions of biodiversity loss. And that is what has given rise to so many of our global threats and climate change and pandemics and food insecurity. That's all stemming from our utilitarian approach to find the functions of nature. Instead, what we need to be doing is promoting the holistic beauty of nature. And that is when it provides all of those functions that allows us to survive best. I did have a stroke and it, it was mad. I came from nowhere. I was just living my life, doing my studies with my fungi. And then, yeah, it's called a pontine stroke. It's one of the most serious it's in the pons region of your brain, which is the brainstem where all, all of your autonomic things are controlled, like your breathing and your speaking and things you don't think about. And when that happens, many people die or they are in a wheelchair for a long time. It's a very serious stroke. And I was under the impression that I was going to die. And waking up the next day was obviously the best day of my life, but also it just really crystallized my focus. I needed to understand the scale of what I was working on. I needed to make every minute of my work count towards something bigger. I, I, I think before that, I was always too scared. I was like, oh, I'm not smart enough to try and really help. I'm not smart enough to make a difference. And after the stroke, I was like, who cares if I'm smart enough? I'm just going to try my absolute hardest with every fiber of my being. And I enjoyed my life more after the stroke. I enjoyed my life more since throwing myself in, into this sort of mission in, in a larger way. I had a very tangible interaction with a teacher that totally shaped everything in my life. I struggled in school. I always liked nature, but I'm dyslexic. So I struggled with reading parts of school. I was doing really badly. I managed to get into a, a good university in the UK. And then I actually ended up messing around in a class with 300 students, one of those huge auditoriums. And I was messing around and I threw my friend's hat off and it unfortunately landed on the projector. And the teacher at the time was furious, understandably, and he sent me out of the class, but he met me after that class. And he essentially said, what are you doing? Why are you in this class? Why are you here? And I was like, I like ecology, but I just can't keep up. And he was like, 
if you like ecology, that's all you need. What do you mean you can't keep up? And I was like, I, I'm dyslexic. You know, there's too much reading. It's too much statistics. And he went, if you like ecology, just find the bits that you like and do that. I just needed to look at the fungi and find them fascinating. And then that gives you positive endorphins when you have a successful experiment. So you do another one. And then I just immersed myself in the parts that I enjoyed. And through that process, things started to go really well. And my degree went really well. And then after that, my career sort of exploded. And it's genuinely, I know if I'd not encountered that professor, there's no way my career would have gone the direction it has done. And I just think teachers are unbelievable inspirers, not necessarily for the knowledge they give you, but more for just inspiring you to follow your own path. And that's, I think, what we need to replicate in the restoration movement. I think people who live on the land know what they need to do. We just need to collectively find the tools to fund them and, and encourage them and support them and enable them and give them the tools that, so that they can rebuild the world. Because I think we all have this inherent connection with nature and it's all about spreading that belief that we can do it. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.